And just so you know, we're going to continue praising the Lord, but it's going to come from a posture of listening to his word. And so we're going to, we're going to, we're going to continue. That, that is worship. It brings him honor and glory, not just when we stand and sing, praise the Lord for that, but it also brings him honor and glory when we sit and listen to his word, that it is all praise. And so we're going to continue praising. We aren't going to stop, literally. I mean that. I'm going to pray for us, and then uh, we'll spend some time in God's word. Father, we will spend all of eternity praising your name, and we will have ample reason to do so. You are worthy that your name is high and lifted up, that you are abounding in mercy and steadfast love and covenantal faithfulness to your people. And it is you who spoke all things into existence by your powerful word when there was nothing. And it is you and you alone who speaks that same powerful word into our hearts that we who walk around in darkness might see and might live and might rise out of our sins and turn to Jesus, your Savior. This is your doing, and it is your work, and so we cannot take credit for any of it. And therefore, since we can take no credit, it is fitting to praise the one who deserves all glory. And so our prayer is that you would tune our hearts to that. Turn to your people now and speak through your servant. Turn to your people now and Encourage them and build them up for the sake of Christ. Amen. All right. Um, we're going to be taking a break from Ezra for a few weeks. We'll make it through the Advent season and we'll pick up with Ezra again in January. And so for the next four weeks, three weeks, I get the privilege. And it really is a privilege of thinking deeply about the incarnation, the reality that we really believe as Christians that God became man and he was actually born. He was actually sent here on a divine rescue mission. And so I love the fact that we get to think long and hard about that for the next several weeks. Um, and so we're going to start by reading Genesis chapter three. And I'm, it might seem like a weird place to start talking about Christmas, but hopefully I can convince you otherwise. Genesis chapter 3, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And the serpent said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said that you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die, which God did not say that, but... Verse four, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. So he's changing the word of God for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he also ate. And then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
and the man and his wife, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord God turned to the serpent and said, and he didn't ask him any questions. He just talked at him because you have done this. Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman God said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. And in pain you shall bring forth children. And also your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you that you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field and by the sweat of your face, you shall eat your bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and therefore to dust you shall return. And the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. But the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. And then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, speaking of the Trinity, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And the Lord God drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Amen. I am notorious for showing up to the movie theater late. I have a rule. I do not want to waste 23 minutes looking at previews. And so it's kind of a rule in the McGowan household. If a movie starts at 7.30, we will not show up until 7.45. We will not get our ticket until 7.45 because we know that it's 23 minutes of previews. Now, occasionally, I mess that up. I misjudge the time. I underestimate the line at the ticket register. I underestimate how long it's going to take to go do the bathroom visits. I underestimate the line for the popcorn. And by the time we walk into a movie, it's 15 minutes after the movie has started. And if you've ever tried to watch a movie that you did not watch from the beginning, it is brutal. I mean, we, we don't have to do that because we can rewind at home. But in a the movie theater, you cannot rewind it. 
And so it is brutal to watch a movie that you did not see from the beginning. I'll give you an example, the movie Rio. It's a kid's movie, I, I, it's one of my favorites. So if, if you watch the first nine minutes and 47 seconds of, I, I looked, I checked it, of the movie Rio, you know everything you need to know about the entire movie. Why? You know the plot. You know what the movie is going to be about. You also know the main characters. You know the setting. Where will the movie take place? You know the conflict. What is this issue that needs to be resolved by the time the 97 minutes of the movie are up? Like you kind of know all of this and you sort of get it in the first 10 minutes of a movie. So take, for example, Rio. I mean, when the movie comes on, there's this blue macaw that tumbles off of a truck and this librarian finds it and his, she names him Blue. And she raises this blue macaw and he's a house pet. He cannot fly, he hates outdoors and he loves hot chocolate, right? So you get all of this is kind of in the first like three minutes of the movie. Well then, what, what else is going on? There's another side story where there's one more blue macaw that is in Rio, hence the name of the movie Rio, and they realize that he has the only male, female and the only other blue male, blue macaw male, is in Minnesota. And so this scientist has this brilliant idea. Let's just fly to Minnesota. Let's convince this lady who has the only other blue macaw on the planet that we need to link up and we need to breed these animals in order to save the species. And so the whole movie, you get that in the first nine minutes. The whole movie is about how will this happen? Will they make it to Rio safely? Will they get kidnapped again? Here's the thing, that if you don't know the beginning, that when you finally see Blue fly, you aren't moved by that accomplishment because you didn't know that he couldn't fly. And so you're not moved in the theater as you watch it that this is really a big deal. That if you don't know that he's a house pet when, and she is the opposite of that, when they get together and it works, then you're not moved by everything that they overcame to be a couple. That when, when, when the, the, the two macaws are kidnapped in Rio, it's not a big deal to you. Okay, just go get two other birds. If you did not know that they are the only two on the planet, you see what's happening? That this first opening scene if you miss that, you don't see the beauty and texture of the entire movie. The first scene informs it all. Now, I'm, I'm saying that because what would it be like if you were sitting there from the beginning? If you were sitting next to a person who saw the movie from the beginning, you're looking at the same scene. One person is experiencing the movie as the director intended, because they've seen it all. The other person is watching the same scene, but they can't fully appreciate what's happening because they've missed the beginning. Now, the, the case that I wanna make to you is this. We are entering into an important scene in the calendar year of the world. We are entering into the season where we are talking about the incarnation, the reality, this truth claim of Christianity that God Almighty sent his son to be born of a virgin, right? That's a really big deal. You know, famous people get holidays. When you're God, you get a whole calendar system that is oriented around your arrival. 
So this whole time before Jesus in the Gregorian calendar, it's, it's called B.C., before Christ. And then Jesus shows up and we date that according to that. This is Anno Domini, the year of the Lord. So everything after his birth, like this is how mo momentous the birth of Christ is, that a whole calendar has been shifted because this guy shows up. So we know it's a big deal. It's a really big deal, whether you believe it or not. It's a big deal that Jesus shows up. Now, here's the thing. If you only look at the incarnation as we frame it, the coming of Christ, and you don't know the backstory, you don't know the beginning, you don't know why he's coming, then you might look at this scene of Christmas and you might draw out implications for Christmas that aren't what the director intended. You might say that Christmas is about being with family. You might say that Christmas is about being generous. You might say that Christmas is about lights. Like, see, the, the star, it's what led the wise men there. So let's put up lights. You might say that Christmas is about being nice. The office culture changes, right? You might say that Christmas is about decorating and putting wreaths and like, like, you know, like, like, and here's the thing. All of that is partially right. But is that what the director intended? Is that the depth and extent of how we're to ready ourselves and view Advent? The case that I want to make to you is it's not sufficient. It's good, but there's more. There's more there to Advent than just going buying presents. There's more to Advent than just spending time with your family. There's more to Advent than all of those things, right? It has to be more. And what I want to do is sort of help us in this season get there. I want to help us. And to do that, we have to show up to the movie on time. We have to see the advent as one of many important scenes in God's grand story for the world. In other words, we have to make a beeline from the manger back to the garden. We have to make a beeline from the good news announced by Gabriel, the angel, to Mary. We have to beeline that back to the good news that came out of the mouth of God. The first person to deliver good news to a woman was not an angel. It was God himself. We have to go straight from this manger where Jesus is born outside because there's no room for him here. We have to go back to Eden where they were kicked out. They could not do life in God's presence, in God's garden anymore. It was out. And so it makes perfect sense that when Jesus is born, he's not born in where it's comfortable. He's not born in where it's nice and it's air conditioning. No, he's out there with the animals. He's out there in the wild. You have to beeline the advent back to creation. And the scripture does this. When Luke gives Jesus' genealogy, Luke traces it from the top back down to the bottom. And you know where he lands? He lands back at Seth. And he lands back at Adam. And Seth was Eve's son. And Adam was Eve's wife. You see what Luke is doing? Luke is beelining the incarnation with creation. 
He's going straight back there. Now, what I want to do, I think because of that, I have grounds, we have grounds to let the garden help us understand Christmas and to let Christmas help us understand the garden. Those two things are related. They are not disconnected. They are apart. They, they need to be joined together. You with me there? All right. So what do we say about Christmas that we can learn from the garden? The first thing I want to say is Christmas exposes the curse in the garden. And during this season, I want you to listen to it. Christmas exposes the curse and the sadness of the garden. And while the world is telling you to smile and while the world is telling you that this is a chipper season, I want to give you permission to be sad around Christmas. Now, unless you think I'm making this up, if you look at your bulletin, you'll notice the song that we just sang, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. Look right there at verse three. It says, come to earth to taste our what? All right, say it again. He came to earth to what? Sadness. So wrapped up in the incarnation is this a permission, this divine permission from God for you to experience sadness. When the world is saying smile, we can actually be sad. Now, this sadness will show itself in a bunch of different ways. So here's what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a few pictures and I'm hoping to kind of, hopefully I'll cover all my bases, right? For some, Christmas brings sadness because it is a sobering reminder that while the world is turning towards themselves and their children and their spouses, for those of you who are single, you're sad around Christmas time. That it's hard. That while everyone is with their significant other in pajamas and eating s'mores and like you're like by yourself. And, and you feel that. You feel it. It's heightened around Christmas time. Or suppose you're a single mother, right? And you're raising kids on your own. And you have limited resources. And you can't afford that purse. And you can't afford those shoes. And you can't afford that PlayStation 3 that your children want. I mean, you are barely making it. And so Christmas, when it comes to you and everyone is parading, buy this, get this, you don't feel that. You feel something different. You feel inadequacy around Christmas time. And it's slapped into your face year after year. Why are you showing me over and over and over again what I don't have? And so Christmas doesn't come to you with joy makes you sad. For others, I mean, think about just for other people. Christmas brings sadness, not because you don't get what you want, but you don't get what you truly need. And what I mean by that is this, is that, that some of you are successful and you can give your children everything on their Christmas list. But that success comes with a cost. It comes with a price. The price of you working 60 hours a week. The price of you not being home to do homework. The price of you not being present. 
And so here's the thing. Your kids can look at everything they want and they can get it. Well, here's the thing. They don't want toys. They want your time. And so Christmas is another incident in which they get what they want, but they don't get what they really need. It's easy to buy this stuff away when and it's harder to give ourselves. And so Christmas, even for kids who have everything, don't look at the smiles, look behind it. Sadness. For some of you, like this is your first Christmas where a loved one was buried this year. A close friend was buried this year. A son was buried this year. For some of you, you were pregnant in the spring and you had already fast forwarded to Christmas. Oh my God, we will get to take family pictures and I will be right here and my husband will be right here and we will have a baby in the middle and you lost a baby. And when Christmas comes, it's a sobering reminder of loss. You see what I'm saying? Christmas doesn't mean happiness for everybody. If we're really, really, really honest, it comes to us and it might find us sad. Now, what I want to do is, it's not that it's not there, but I think Christmas has a way of uncovering what's there and exposing and illuminating what's already there. Now, here's the thing. These are all areas that have been cursed by the fall. Have you thought about that? I mean, the reason that you and your baby's father, it didn't work out was because there's this conflict within the relationship between a man and a wife. But that's what God cursed in the garden. The reason that work has become an idol and you work so much and are not at home is because work was cursed in the garden. The reason that there's tension with raising children. I mean, the Lord told Eve in pain, you will give birth. That it will be hard to birth children and then raise children. And so what we're saying is this, is that the source of all of our sadness at Christmas, I'm telling you, it can be traced right back to the garden. All the areas that cause us harm and ache and heartache, trust me, you can make a beeline right back to a curse that was issued out by God himself when they ate of the tree. And so it's no small thing when Eve is tempted by Satan to dishonor the Lord. It's no small thing when Satan tells Eve, you will not die. The Lord is holding back. He's afraid that you will become like him. Well, Genesis 2 says that they were made in the image of God. They were already like God. How much more like God can you get than being made in his image? Oh, here's the real issue. You didn't want to be like God. You wanted to be God. That's the real issue. God was not sufficient. It's the reason at Christmas time we get these gifts. I mean, I got a big green egg three years ago, right? My wife surprised me. I just knew it was going to change my world. Like this grill, right? And I, I had some friends who had one. So I went to this place where they got it. And I went there every Saturday. Let me go. I want one. And so finally, one Saturday, I go there and I stay like two hours and I'm leaving. I mean, the guy, he has a phenomenal business. Like you can he actually cooks there every Saturday morning and he'll do a recipe and you can come up there and help him get the recipe going. And then he cooks it. And then by lunchtime, you get to taste what you cook. And then he emails you the recipe. So I was all in like like a fish with a hook in my mouth. Right. And so finally, I leave. This is like three years ago around Christmas time. I leave and the lady knocks on the door, Mr. McGowan, you forgot something. 
I need to load a big green egg in your car. I'm just like, what? I didn't pay for that. My wife, she had called. <laughs> she had called and she had told them, hey, get this for him. And so I go home and it is going to revolution. It's going to change the game, right? And you know what? That lasted for a year, maybe. And it's outside. It rains on. And I still cook on it. But don't we feel that at Christmas, whether it's a toy or a big green egg or a TV, that what we think we need will satisfy us? It eventually does not. And that is sad. But here's the thing. That is no different than what they did when they reached out for a tree thinking that that thing will give them life and meaning, and it disappointed. We live this over and over and over again. Do you see it, Christian? He cursed Eve. He cursed Adam. And God, he was, they were forced out of God's presence. God himself drove them out of the garden. And he told them, you can't dwell here. And the Lord God himself put an angel at, at the tree of life to guard it with a sword that was on fire so that if anybody wanted to get back into the garden, they would die. You would be slaughtered. In other words, there's a rupture in relationship with God. And that kind of covers all the bases, right? I don't have a relationship with my wife that isn't tainted by the curse. I don't relate to my children that isn't tainted by the curse. I don't relate to my work that's not tainted by the curse. I don't relate to the world around me that's not, related by the, that's not affected by the curse. And I don't relate to God that's not affected by the curse. That covers all the bases. You can turn nowhere and the curse of God has not hurt it. And it's self-inflicted because of their idols, because of their idolatry. And here's the thing, because we are in them covenantally related, that guilt and that curse, it's passed down to us all. And it's no different. If you were a bench warmer playing for the LA Lakers in the 90s, right? If you never played a single minute, but you were on the team, you still got a championship ring. That's how it is with Adam and Eve. We weren't there. But we're on the team and they lost it. <laughs> and we are cursed. Therefore, Christmas exposes this sadness. Sadness and grief over our sin. Sadness and grief over sins committed against others. Sadness and grief over idolatries against God. Sadness and grief over the sins that have been committed against us. Ultimate sadness because there are problems of our world and within our hearts that we cannot fix. And Christmas has a way of exposing that. Now, the second thing I think we can deduce from this relationship between the at the incarnation and the garden is that Christmas, but it does expose God's common grace. And I want to, you know, say that Christmas exposes the common grace of God that, that we see in the garden. And I want us to see it. Now, it might seem like I'm being double-minded, right? How is he going to tell me to be sad? That's appropriate to be sad. And then how is he also telling me that it's appropriate to feel kind of happy? Well, I, I think when you go back and you look at the text that you're going to get nuances of this. And 
But so the first thing, here's what I'm saying. What's probably going to happen is if you're single, you'll go to that place of loneliness. But here's what I hope happens. I hope that you get a phone call from a friend who says, hey, can you come over around the fire and let's kind of hang out? And so in that moment when you would be alone, that there has been a reaching out to you that invites you in. Now, that isn't a spouse, right? And it doesn't cure what's going on there. But here's what it does do. It does remind you that you're not alone and that there are people out there who care for you. And so suppose you're going through this exercise of saying, I don't have enough money because this dude's not giving me child support or things. It's just not working out. But here's where you will probably land. But I am thankful. I have a house. And I have food. And we have not missed a meal. Right? Like the, the Christmas will do that. Here's what I'm saying. Like, that, like even if you are in that, that horrible, it's not horrible, let me not say that, that hard stage of getting up three times during the night raising kids and being a professional taxi, dropping them off here and there and lugging car seats and diaper bags, like it, th- that's hard, right? But here's the thing, you know that they grow up, that one day they will be able to clean their own rooms and go to the restroom alone. And so even in the midst of how hard it is to raise kids and birth kids, you also know it's going to get better, right? That even though you've lost a loved one this year, you deep down inside, you know that, wait a minute, I had them for 30 years and it was good. You see that that Christmas This season has a way of taking our minds there to common grace. Now, here's what I want to show you in the text. Common grace is all over this passage. I mean, you see it right there. The first thing is that God told them that they would die, die. In the Hebrew, die, die. You will die, die twice. You go to Genesis chapter 5. Adam lived 930 years. That's 339,000 days. He was in his prime at 400 years old. Like, think about that. In your prime at 400? And guess what? That's 339 days that screamed grace. It screamed, you should have died back there, but I'm going to let you live. That you would have you you would think that when God told them you're going to die, that that, that when they would hide and run from God, that it was God who sought them out. It was God saying, where are you? What have you done? That is his grace pursuing and moving towards broken people. That when you go back and you look at the fact that they sowed fig leaves on themselves, right? In Genesis 3, verse 7, God says, no, 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 no. I'm going to kick you out of the garden, but I'm going to give you bags packing, right? And so as I kick you out, let me sow something on you that's going to really protect you. Because have you noticed that when you take a fig leaf from a tree that that leaf is dead, it's not going to last. Let me do something that's better than what you can do. You see how generous God is being in the text? Now think about this. He cursed Adam's work, but work is still fruitful. That yes, you have thorns and thistles to compete with, but guess what? You're going to put nine seeds in the ground. You might get a yield of seven, but a yield of seven is way better than a yield of zero. You see what's happening? 
It's going to be harder, but work will be fruitful. You see it again, when God did not terminate their marriage, I mean, this is what blows my mind that Eve carries around this sense of shame and guilt. And Adam is probably pointing the finger and he does point the finger in the text. What have you done, Adam? It's the woman. The woman you gave me, she did it. And so you get this finger pointing in Genesis. But here's the thing. It does, nowhere does it say that they were divorced. And that's a pretty significant offense that because of you, I die now, woman. Now, I mean, Adam, it's mutual, right? They both were guilty. I'm just saying, think of any offense that any husband and wife could have against each other, and it does not compare to this offense, this betrayal. And here's the thing. They actually make it. He does not say, trade her in. Can you give me a new one, right? They just kind of work at it. If you're married, then you know this. You know that, yes, marriage is hard. Yes, you have two sinners doing life together, and you fight, and you fuss, and you're figuring out roles, but ask any married person. There are moments in marriage where it is a reflection of heaven. It is a reflection of the gospel. It's not that bad. Think about raising kids. It gets better, right? Eve's womb could have been closed. I mean, she would lose two sons in one chapter. Cain kills Abel. Abel's dead, and then Cain gets sent away. So she is down to no sons. And in Genesis chapter 5, she has another son whose name is Seth. You see, that's grace. It's going to be hard, and it's going to be lost, but your womb will still be fruitful. You see, when God says, I will put enmity. Now think about that. He's saying this to Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. So right there, what God is saying is this. Satan, there is enmity between you and the woman. And, 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 and there's going to be enmity one layer deeper than that. There's going to be enmity between this woman will have children and they will be devoted to the Lord. But this woman will also have children and they will be devoted to destruction. And guess what? They are going to clash and fight. And you see it in the next chapter in Genesis 4. Abel is killed by, by Cain, his own brother. Right there. It's being enacted. The seed of the woman Abel, the seed of the serpent, Cain, and there's friction. But here's the thing. I'll take this friction and fighting all day. That is better than being co-opted and handed over to evil where you do not fight. And so when the Lord says, I will put enmity between good and evil, what he's really saying is this. You're going to fight to death. But you, Satan, will not infect the eternal nature of everyone. There will be some set apart according to my good pleasure, and they will be mine, and they will fight you. You will not destroy everything. You see that? That, that it looks bad, but that's actually kind of good, that God is making a promise you're not going to corrupt you will corrupt everything, but I'm going to redeem some of it. There's going to be redemption, and it's going to happen. God is, and this sounds so blasphemous. God even treated Satan with grace. I mean, he actually lets him live. 
He actually does not destroy him right then and there. Even Satan right now is roaming and it's only because God Almighty has allowed it. Now, that's above my like, I just don't know. Like, I'm just admitting like I don't know what what to do with it, but it's true. Do you see this? That common grace was there in the garden. And if you're honest and you stop and look at it in your own life, it's there right now. Now, this is kind of where the world stops with Christmas. They stop right there. They stop with, I want a family and I want kids and I want to get stuff. They stop right there. And I'm telling you and I, we don't stop with common grace. We kick it up a notch for saving grace. Now, here's the thing. I have, we have this dog that we got this summer. His name is Luke, and he is this giant schnauzer. We had a lab. We loved his temperament, but Luke is just, he's not a lab. Like, he is just stubborn. And so we let him outside, and he does not want to come back in. I mean, you can call at him, and he will look at you, and you try to go get him, he'll take off running. And he does this over and over and over again. And so here's the thing. This is how I get Luke in the house. I pick up his treats. And I rattle the treats, right? I have to shake the treats, the doggy treats. And then I have to literally like put a trail of treats outside (laughs) to like to get this dog to like come in inside where it's warm to get him to come inside to eat a real meal. Like he has to be tricked and he has to be led in. Here's the thing that I want to the case that I want to make to you. That the pain and suffering you feel around this time of year. And the common grace that you feel around this time of year, it is as if God is throwing treats, saying, come on, come more, come on in, come on in, come on in, and let me bring you in this place where it's safe, and let me really satisfy your soul. See, that's the way this suffering and this grace is supposed to work in our lives, that we're supposed to feel the weight of the curse right here, right now. And we're simultaneously supposed to feel the common grace of God that he would lead us to something better. And that's exactly what you see in this passage, that when God gives his promise to Eve and he gives his words to Adam, I mean to to Satan. Notice what he says. In Genesis 3.15, he says, to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, your seed and her seed. But notice what he says right there. He says, you, no, he will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. So do you see what's happening? He's going straight from Adam, I mean, Eve and Satan. He's going to their offspring, and then it comes to a point with a person. I'm sending a person, and the person that I am sending, who was born of a woman, born under the law, he is going to crush your head, snake. Now that's a fatal blow. What God is preaching right there in Genesis is that there is coming one way down the line 
and he is going to step on your head and crush it. And you're going to bite him. You're going to strike his heel and it's going to hurt him and injure him. But which one is fatal? The blow to the head. And what's happening right here in Genesis is God himself is preaching the gospel. He is telling Satan that Eve will have a son way down the line. And that son will put an end to you, O snake. And you might kill him and he might die. But in three days, guess what? He's going to be raised from the dead. And guess what? When he is raised from the dead, he will redeem his people because he has laid aside his own life to purchase them back. And so here's the thing. When you read Hebrews chapter two, listen to what the author of Hebrews says. It says, since therefore the children of God share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things that through his death, he might destroy the one who has the power over death. That is the devil. And then deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to their lifelong slavery. What the author of Hebrews is saying is this. Jesus came to reverse the curse. He came to kill the one who subjected it all. He came to turn it back and make things better than they were. He came to turn it back and to give us everything that we truly need. He, he, he came to turn it back and to heal us of all of our suffering and to catapult us and amplify the saving grace of God. It is not just about what you get. It is not just about being nice. It is not just about having your perfect family intact. It is about God bringing you back into his family. It's about God paying the cost and the penalty for your sin. It is about Jesus Christ who came to the very earth that we live in and he was hunted down from day one. Herod wanted to kill him. It was the same Jesus Christ who was single his entire life and was tempted in every way that we are. So he knows what it's like to be lonely. It was Jesus Christ who was poor, who relied on the generosity of other people. He knows what it's like to barely having ends meet. It was Jesus Christ who was, was conflicted with his own family. They called him a crazy man. He knows what it's like to have sibling rivalry. It was Jesus Christ who buried his own father and then had to entrust his mother to his disciples because he knows that this death is going to fracture the family. Here's what Jesus is saying. There is not one ounce of suffering and hardness that you and I endure in this life that he does not say, through my birth, I'm going to taste it all. And I'm going to redeem you from it. And I'm going to make all things new. And so Christmas is supposed to catapult us there to seeing the beauty of Christ, that through the coming down of this son, he is not just giving us the best lives now. He has given us the life as God intended. There's a reason when we sing joy to the world, we know that that's a song about the coming of Christ. 
Joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and nature sing. But there's a third line. Listen to this one. No more let sins and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. As far as the curse is found. As far as the curse is found. You see that his image, his picture of Christmas is so much bigger than the world's vision. He's coming to make it all new. And that's what we celebrate during this season. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you and thank you for your word and for the way that you have seamlessly connected the garden to the manger. You seamlessly connected Mary to Eve. You seamlessly connected the preaching of the good news of Gabriel to the preaching of the good news from your own mouth. And so I do pray that as we enter into this season that we would suffer and grieve, that we would see your hand, your goodness and your faithfulness, but that we would be led into your ultimate goodness to us in Christ. Help us, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.